Mark Twain is uh, attributed with the saying, um, the clothes make the man. Um, but he actually didn't say that. He said this, one realizes that without his clothes, a man would be nothing at all. That the clothes do not merely make the man, the clothes are the man. That without them, he is a cipher, a vacancy, a nobody, a nothing. And he goes on to say, there is no power without clothes. And I don't think that, that Mark Twain understood the, the spiritual uh, reality of, uh, of the depth of, of that statement. I think he was, he was thinking about a physical reality. Um, towards the end of his life, Twain actually began to wear white suits every single day believing this, this sort of you know, physical power coming from what it is that you wear. Uh, this morning, we're going to uh, look at what Paul has to say about what to wear, and, and we're going to see that, that whether he intended it or not, uh, Twain's words actually do come true, that there is no power without these new clothes that we're going to look at. Um, we are in week eight of a 12-week series on uh, the letter to the Ephesians. And um, uh, Paul spends the first half of this letter uh, reminding us of who we are uh, because of who God is and what God has done for us. And uh, he spends all of this time um, laying out for us what, what this new identity that we have because of, because of God. And in the beginning of chapter 4, at the halfway point through the book, he switches focus and he starts talking to us about how we get to live because of that new identity. And it begins chapter 4 by saying, walk. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Your calling. And he's sort of referring back to, to Ephesians chapter 1, where he, he says that this salvation that we have is the result of, of God calling and choosing us before the foundations of the earth were even laid. That, that he knew that we would be a people who would walk away from him. That we would reject him. That we would go our own way and follow our own path. And as a result of that, death and sin would enter our reality. God knew that and yet he called and chose us anyway. And, and what we are be, because of sin and death, because of this new reality, Paul says we're dead. We're walking corpses. Not only that, we're slaves. We're slaves to the world, slaves to our flesh. We're, we're slaves to, to, to an enemy, Satan. And we're condemned. We're condemned under the, the wrath of God. And, and he goes on to say that even more than that, because we're not part of God's chosen people, um, as Gentiles, we are, we are outside of the people of promise. We're outside of the covenant community. We're, we're apart from, from that. And, and because of this, we have no hope apart from God. That's what he says. But God. But God enters in. God takes on flesh, and the Son comes, and he lives the life that we couldn't live. He, he follows the path that we couldn't follow or didn't want to follow, and he lives this holy and righteous life in order to make an exchange with us at the cross. The exchange is made, and he takes on our sin and imparts his righteousness. You see, we who were slaves... The response that we get from him is he's bound and he's the one who's taken away. That, that he's the one who's cut off from his relationship with the Father and the Spirit in his death so that we could be brought in and made family. That, that his death means life for us. 
And so Paul says, this is the reality of your identity, so don't live a different way. Live in light of this. Walk in the truth of what this means. This morning we're going to see Paul add this this analogy of of putting on this new kind of clothing. That we are to, to put off the old and put on the new. And it's like Paul is taking this over to the closet and he's saying, uh, there you are. You got two outfits to choose from. There's the old man and there's the new man. There's the old woman and the, the new woman. There's, there's the old self and the new self. And the old self is characterized by, it, it's threadbare, it's, it's worn thin, it's, it, it, it's ripped and torn and stained, but there's the, the new person, the, the one that Christ gives you. And it looks like it's righteous and it looks holy and it, and it looks like the God that made it for you. Put that on. Throughout the book of, uh, or the, the chapter four of, of Ephesians, we see um, Paul telling us to turn away from this and to turn toward something else. And so he says to, to put off the old man and to put on the new man or the new self. We talked about this last week that because of what Christ has done, we are seated with him in the heavenlies. We, we look at all of the things that Paul talks about, uh, about God doing for us, and, and the reality is, is our salvation is done. It's secure. It's bought. It's paid for. God has done everything in order to save you. He has done all the work required in order to redeem you back to a relationship with God the Father. He's done it all, and all that's required of you is to accept that gift by faith. That's it. But because of this, your sin is crucified with Christ. You are raised with Christ. You're seated in the heavenlies with Christ. And that's where you get to be. You're sitting with him. And we talked about this last week, that that you don't have to walk. You can remain seated. But we're not. We're not going to do that because when we look at the cross, we we can't help but be moved by the the most powerful act of love that that has ever transpired for us. We see the cross and we see the love and we see the mercy and we can't help but respond. Now, Paul says um, in, in this per- first part of uh, Ephesians 4, he says that um, Christ ascended and he's referring to a psalm that talks about the Messiah ascending up Mount Zion with a, a, leading a host of captives free. But, but the point that Paul makes, he says, in order for him to ascend, he has to descend first. He had to descend first, that, that Christ got up from his seat to come and save you. And so the right response to that is for us to get up out of our seat and go where he leads us to go. But saying yes to one walk means saying no to another walk. So let's dive in. Ephesians 4, 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Um, a Gentile is a, is a generic term for anyone who is not Jewish. And Paul's audience um, are they're Gentiles. They're living in Ephesians. They're, they're, they're Christian converts, but they are, by definition, they're, they're non-Jewish. They're, they're Gentiles. But Paul is saying that they're now different. And he's going to use the word Gentile to mean something else entirely. For, for these people, they're no longer Gentiles. They're, they're saved. They're a new creation. They're a new people in Christ Jesus. And, and he says that Gentiles are, are characterized by, by something else. They're characterized by an old self, an old man, or the, an old woman, depending on your translation. And, and it's the person that you used to be. It's characterized by feudal thinking, if you look at the passage. Darkened understanding, ignorance and hardness, hardness of heart, uh, 
A Gentile has given themselves over to sensuality and not only ready to engage in anything perverse, but they're actually hungry and they're anxious to do so. They're corrupt and they lie to themselves in order to justify their behavior. They exemplify bitterness. They despise reconciliation. They're wrathful. They're prone to passionate rage and and, and hostility. They shout and they scream others down. They slander and they speak lies and they're full of evil intent towards people. That's, That's the picture that Paul creates of this Gentile. Now, that's a pretty bleak picture right? That, that, that's a pretty bleak understanding of, of what the old man looks like. And Paul says that we're to walk away from that and we're to embrace a different character, a new man or a new woman, a new self, and that's characterized by God's image. It's, it's righteous, it's holiness, and it's a new identity that comes from, from Christ. And what Paul is really stating here is that the clothes really are the man. Clothes really are the woman, if we'll put them on. And at this point, I think it's helpful to address a question that some of you might be asking in in regards to the the bleakness of what Paul is writing about these Gentile people. What about good people that don't believe in God? I mean, I have friends, I have neighbors, I have um, people that I I care about, people, members of, of, of my extended family, that in a lot of ways, they're, they're good people by human standards. They're really good. But yet they don't have a relationship with God. And, and here we, we have Paul, and he's, he's making these two pictures. And, and on one hand, there's this, this pagan Gentile who's just utterly perverse, right? And over here, there's the, the new creation, the new Christian, right, that, that has this, this new self, Right? And, and, and we know people that, that probably look less like Paul's description of this pagan Gentile and more like the Christian. Well, what about people, good people who don't know God? Can we really fairly categorize them the way that Paul does? Uh, one commentator on this passage says this, not all pagans were or are as dissolute as those he is about to portray. Yet, Just as there is a typical Christian life, so there is a typical pagan life. And when each is true to its own principles, it is fundamentally opposed to the other. See, the difference primarily is that we have different answers to the question of why be good. The the Christian answers the question, why be righteous? Why be moral? Why pursue holy? Why be good? We have a different answer to that question than the person that Paul is describing as a pagan Gentile. You see, for us, the reason for morality, the reason to be good, the reason for righteousness is out of a response to what God has done for us. It's a response of love to the one who first loved us. It's all about a response. We see the cross and we see what God has done and the lengths that he has gone to in order to save us. And because we desire to love him back, that is our motivation towards purity and holiness and righteousness and morality. It's a response. But you see, to to everyone else, morality is a means to an end. Morality is the means to getting what you want. And whether it's from other people, like the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? You treat people the way that you want to be treated. 
So your morality towards people is based on a hope that they'll be back, kind back to you. Or, or maybe, maybe you have a, a belief in a, in a deity and, and you believe that, that morality will save you, that you could earn the affection of this deity, that, that you can do all of these good works and you can cross off all these boxes and you can do this and you can avoid doing this. And because of that, this God will owe you. He will owe you blessing and he will take care of you. But as a transactional relationship, you are good because what you'll get out of it. Or maybe it's not like a personal deity that you worship. Maybe it's just the universe. Maybe it's the, the, the universal mind or whatever you want to call it. A, a, a spirit that's somewhere out there and, and you've got to put out good vibes and you've got you to put out good feelings and you've got to put out kindness and put out love and put out, and if you'll do that, then, then the universe will, will reciprocate that love back upon you. It's karma. You see, the, the basis for morality for people apart from God is for what you can get out of it. But what happens when there's nothing good to get out of it? Look at verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. See, the person says, I don't need God to be moral. That's hardness of heart. That, that, that's a failure to be receptive to the one that actually created you for him. It's hardness of heart. And you see, hardness of heart leads to darkness of mind. That the person that can't accurately look at themselves and they can't look within themselves and see the depravity of their own nature. They, they can't look inside and see the, their sin. They can't see the, the person that they really, truly are underneath. And they're darkened in mind. Hardness of heart leads to darkness of mind. Darkness of mind leads to deadness of soul. Being alienated from God means being alienated from life. He is life. And to cut yourself off from him is to cut yourself off from what it means to be truly alive. Hardness of heart, darkness of mind, deadness of soul, and the result is recklessness of life. When you don't have a reason to be moral anymore, you stop. Uh, I think that our own literature reflects this quite well. I was reminded this last week about um, how science fiction is, is able to um, help us see things that are, that are true about ourselves. Um, years ago, uh, a guy named Ernest Klein wrote a book called Ready Player One, and it was turned into a movie. And um, the, the premise of the, the book or, or movie is that there's this dystopian future and um, everybody's in poverty um, and, and, and the world is, is, is starving and all sorts of, of things are happening that are, that are just monstrous, but people can escape. And they can escape through um, going into this sort of a virtual reality world called the Oasis. And in the Oasis, they can, they can pick their own identity, and, uh, and they can have adventures, and they can interact with other people, and, and they can find some sort of sense of living in this alternate reality. Well, um, Klein actually wrote a sequel. It's called Ready Player Two. 
And it, it takes the next logical conclusion or, or step in, in the storyline of the book. Um, the, the main uh, person, Parzival, he's introduced to this new technology that allows someone to enter into the oasis and interact like it's real. Like he can, he can see like he would normally see and taste and touch and, 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 and feel like everything is like it would be in the real world. And, and this is what Klein says. He says, for less than the cost of an ice latte, you could now safely experience just about anything that a human could experience. You could take any drug, eat any kind of food, and have any kind of sex without worrying about addiction, calories, or consequences. Sound like a good thing. So he has this technology and he's talking to his girlfriend about releasing it and she tells him not to release it, that, that this would be the end of humanity. To, to people to have a, an escape like this from reality and to go and experience anything that they wanted to would not be good for them. Well, he rejects her wisdom and he does it anyway. And she, of course, breaks up with him. And so uh, being brokenhearted and full of anger, he dives into the oasis and he spends 11 hours a day in the oasis and he is experiencing anything and everything that he wants to. And he proves himself to be a complete hedonist and the things that he does are completely sick. Even, even our own science fiction points to the fact that if a heart was let off the chain and it had no consequences, the result would be disastrous. That a hardness of heart would lead to a darkened mind that would lead to a dead soul which would lead to chaos. Irresponsibility, recklessness of life. It's if you don't have a reason to be moral anymore. And that's the end result. That's the trajectory that Paul is really talking about here when he points to the pagan Gentile. And so we ask this question, what about this good person? This, this good person who, who doesn't know God. And what the Bible says is there's no such thing. There's no such thing as a good moral person that doesn't know God. In fact, Paul says in, in Romans that, that no one is righteous, not one of us. The only way for any of us to have any sense of true righteousness is for it to be imparted to us by Jesus Christ. No one is righteous. There's no such thing as a good person that just doesn't know God. There's no righteousness apart from him. In Christ, we get those clothes that make us righteous. The clothes are the man. The clothes are the woman. Getting back to our passage, look at verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. The difference is, is that there is this pagan Gentile and the truth of who Jesus is intersects into their life and completely, radically changes them. And the subject matter of this truth is Christ. And not only is he the subject matter, he's the teacher. That, that he chose these apostles, these, these people to, to, to witness his, his life and his death and his resurrection so that they could go and tell the world and eventually write what we call the New Testament so that it's carried along by time and by the Holy Spirit so that we can receive it and we can experience the truth of God through it. Not only is Jesus the subject matter, 
but he's the teacher. And Paul, he goes one step further, and he says this, that he's actually the atmosphere of which the truth is taught. He says, the truth is in Jesus. And we experience Christ in us, and we in him. The gospel intersects our lives, and it makes it possible for us to now put off this old man, this old woman, this old self, in order to embrace a new self that's provided for us by the righteousness of Jesus. Look at verse 22. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The, the verbs there in 22 and 24, put off and put on. You see Paul wanting us to repent and then have faith put off and put on. And we need to understand that uh, this was done for us at the cross. We go to the cross and we are sinners, but we exchange our sin for his righteousness. The exchange is, is made. God himself, Jesus himself, actually takes off the old person, the old self, and he puts on the new person. That, that's already done for you. Um, Paul puts it this way in, in Colossians 3, 9, and 10. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. All right, putting off and putting on, that, that's past tense, that, that, that's already happened. But there's something that's ongoing that continues to happen, that needs to continue to happen. And that's where we look at, at 23 again. And he says, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. The, the word renewed there, it's a, a present infinitive. And what that means is that it's ongoing. It's constant. Every day we get up and we walk over to that closet and there's the old self and there's the new self. And every day we choose, which one am I going to put on? More than every day, sometimes it's moment by moment. Renew your mind. In other words, you have a hard heart, soften it with the gospel. You have a darkened mind. Enlighten it with the truth of the gospel. Use this, this new body. Put on this new self and walk according to this new self daily, moment by moment for the rest of your life. Renewing of your mind. It really comes down to, to two things. It comes down to repentance and faith, which are really the only two Christian disciplines. Constantly repenting and constantly placing faith. And returning to that dressing room and putting on those new clothes, the clothes that, that are your new true self. Now, Paul's going to get practical with us. Paul's going to give us five practical applications for actually how we put on the new self. And as we look at these, I want you to notice three things about them. The first is that all relational. With everything that Paul's going to instruct us to do in putting on this new self, it's all in the context of community. The point is you cannot grow in righteousness, in holiness, or in Christ-likeness apart from Christian community. You can't be holy in a bubble. You can't be righteous in a bubble. You can't be Christ-like in a bubble. Redeemed behavior is practiced, it's developed, and it's renewed in your relationships with other people. So all, all of these things are seen, they're fleshed out in the context of the community. The second thing that you're going to notice is that there's, there's a negative positive balance. That there's something to be turned away from and something to be turned and embraced. 
Right? There's, there's a repentance factor and there's a faith factor. There's repentance and there's belief. And so you're going to notice this balance. This, the, the third thing that you're going to notice is that he's, he, they're highly practical. He tells us why to do these things. They make sense. So let's dive into the first one. Verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Right, you see the relational dynamic there? Speak the truth to one another. Put away falsehood. Uh, this word falsehood, it literally means the lie. Paul in his teaching is, is constantly targeting idolatry. The lies that we believe about God. We, in the context of community, need to experience relationships where we are confronted with the truth by one another. I need people in my life who know when I'm not believing that God is good and I'm turning to something else. I need people in my life who know when I'm trying to wrestle control out of God's hand because I'm believing a lie that he's not powerful enough to handle it. I need people in my life who remind me of the grace of God when I am trying to prove myself and earn my own salvation. I need people in my life who can show me the glory of God when I am worshiping the, the opinions of people. Speak the truth to one another. Put off the lie, the lie about who God is, the lies about well, what God has done. Embrace the truth. Speak the truth to one another. We desperately need relationships where truth is fostered. A guy named Tony Marita, reflecting on this part, says, uh, in regards to, you know, Paul, Paul using this, this metaphor, the body of Christ, he uses this analogy. He says, if my eye says to my hand, the iron is not hot, and my hand touches it, it'll get burned. If we are a part of this spiritual body, and if we aren't speaking the truth to one another in love, the whole body suffers and it hurts. I think we undervalue how important our relationship and our connectedness with one another is. Do you, do you see what we're supposed to turn away from? Turn away from the lie, repent of it, embrace in faith the truth and speak it. Do you notice the balance there? And do you notice the practicality of it? Look at the next example, verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. You know, the, the Bible clearly teaches that there is righteous anger and there's evil anger. And in this instance, Paul's talking about righteous anger. But we have a God who gets angry because he is righteous. And when confronted with sin, he is angry at sin. What makes God angry should make us angry. There is such a thing as, as righteous anger. If you get angry over the fact that a guy walked into a grocery store this week and killed 10 people, 10 image bearers of God, if you get angry at that, you should, because it angers God. But the thing is, is if, if you're going to try to embrace a, a, a morality that's, that's apart from God, you actually have no, no footing to stand on to, to judge that murderer. There's no righteousness apart from God. That's where we get the truth from. But there is such a thing as righteous anger. And what Paul is saying is, is in, in your righteous anger, don't sin. 
right? Anger that retaliates, anger that avenges, anger that reproduces the same crime over which you're angry is not of God. It's of the old man. It's of the old woman. It's of the old self. We're called to be angry. And the reality is, as a community, we need to be angry at the sin if it's in our midst. If there's something in, in our community, there's, a, there's sin happening, we need to be angry about it, and we need to address it. But the point of it is to bring about reconciliation, not to bring about division. And the thing is, is if we don't address sin in our midst, we give Satan a foothold. The other thing he says is don't, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't, don't be bitter. Don't allow an issue between us to fester and grow and, and produce bitterness in us because that too provides an enemy with an opportunity to divide us. You see the relational nature of this. Do you, do you see the balance? Put off one. Put on the other. And how practical it is. Third example, verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. It's the eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal. And the truth is, is we, we do that. Uh, from cheating on our taxes to uh, cheating on our uh, payroll to you know, adding hours when, that we didn't work or cheating our, our employees or, or, or maybe even it comes to giving to the church and God has provided for us but we, we don't let that money slip through our fingers and go to God's church because we want it. We steal. And he's saying, don't. <laughs> don't. Put off that. Instead, work. Go to work using your hands enough to provide for your family and, and provide for your people, but then you'll have enough left over that you can provide for the needs of other people within your community. Do you see the relational aspect of going to work and repenting of stealing and the ways that we might do that? Fourth example. Let no corrupting talk. Verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Um, corrupting, um, in, in the original language, it also has a, another meaning, rotten. It means rotten, rotten talk. Um, a few, I'm sorry, Proverbs 18.21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Um, Jesus, in Matthew 7, 17, takes off on this, says, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased fruit tree bears bad fruit. Putting all this together, what this means is that we come together, and if we share the off-color joke, or we uh, share gossip, or you know, we, we pass on information that wasn't ours to pass on, or we're slandering this person, or we're slandering that person, what we're essentially doing is putting a piece of rotten fruit in somebody's mouth. I worked in a grocery store for a number of years, and in the produce section, if there's not somebody like going through it a couple times a day to make sure that, that all the, the produce there is, is good, then things can get funky really, really quick. And, and there will be times where you, you go and you, you grab that grapefruit and you turn it over and there's this mound of green mold on the back of it, right? Well, the, the grossest thing that I ever experienced was uh, I looked in a watermelon bin and I went, went, wrenched over to, to pick it up, and on the top it looked beautiful, this pretty green watermelon and I grabbed it and the thing exploded in my hands and putrid watermelons you shot down in my throat it's disgusting and here's what we do when we get together 
We, we, we get together, and instead of talking about the truth and love, instead of dealing with, with, with grace, and instead of giving something, somebody, something nurturing to eat, something healthy to, to chew on, we, we, we put rotten food in one another's faces because of the junk that's coming out of our, our own. Here Paul says, let no corrupting talk, no rotten talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up. Are we, are we speaking words to one another that are nourishing one another? And do you see how that affects community when we don't? Lastly, Paul says the most comprehensive one for last, verses 30 through 32. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. What's to be turned away from here? Grieving the Spirit. What does that mean? Grieving the Spirit. See, you can't understand this if you think that the Spirit of God is an it and not a him. If you think that the third person of the Trinity is not, in fact, a person, that it's some sort of spiritual force just at work and it doesn't have a mind, it just... You just don't really understand it. If you, if you think it's an it and you don't see the, the person, the third person of the Trinity there, then, then you're not going to understand this. A person has feelings. The Father has feelings. The Son has feelings. The Spirit of God has feelings. We, we see it in other places. Hebrews 10.29 says this, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. You can't outrage something that doesn't have feelings. The Holy Spirit is a person and he is grieved, Paul says. He's made sorrowful by our actions. You see that we have been sealed by the Spirit. We, we go back to Ephesians 1, and, and Paul tells us that at the beginning of our relationship, that at that, that the time of our conversion, it's at that point we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And here he mentions it again, but we're sealed until the, the day of final redemption. In other words, the Holy Spirit is, is the person of the Trinity that is holding us all together. And if you're in Christ, then the Spirit of God lives in you, and, and it lives in me, and it's, it's binding us together. It's connecting us together with one another. Any of you have adult children that don't speak to one another anymore? Any of you have a rift in your family where, where people just, they won't even be in the same room with one another anymore? Do you understand the grief that that would cause you as a parent? The Holy Spirit is, is sorrowful. He's sorrowful over our bitterness. He's sorrowful over our resentment towards one another. He's sorrowful over our wrath our passionate rages. He's sorrowful over our anger when it's driven by vengeance. He's sorrowful when we shout each other down. He's sorrowful for the gossip and the slander. He's sorrowful over our ill will and our ill intent towards one another. We grieve the Spirit of God with our actions. You see, what we do, it not only affects our community, it not only affects you and me, it also affects the Spirit of God. That we can grieve Him by refusing to to put off the old man, put it back on instead. What's the solution to all of it? God in Christ Jesus forgave us.
That's what he closes it all with. God in Christ Jesus forgives us. You see, the cross is the place where you get this new person to put on. But the cross is also the place you return to when you fail. That's the cross of Jesus. The reason for all of this is because Christ in Jesus, God in Christ Jesus forgave us. Um, as I get older, I recognize that um, my understanding of my own sin increases. You know, you'd think it'd be the other way, that as, as you grow in spiritual maturity that you would see your sin lessen. But to me, honestly, I see my sin and it seems ever more present and ever bigger. The fortunate side of that, though, is the cross also becomes ever bigger. And I realize that there are times when I put on a fancy white suit, but it's, it's all a facade. And underneath, I'm still wearing the old man. And, and where Paul really digs the knife in me is when it comes to anger. The reality is, is that deep in here, there is intense anger at times. And I feel justified in, in my righteous anger of letting it off the chain. Because I'm feeling frustrated, because things aren't going my way, I feel like I have the right to spew forth anger on other people. And I've done that, and I've hurt people. And I recognize how deeply I need to be changed. And so I come back. God in Christ Jesus forgave me. And I sit in that. I sit at the foot of the cross and I absorb it once again that God in Christ Jesus forgave me. So tomorrow morning I get up and I go to that closet and I put on the new man and I walk and when I fail, I repent and I put it on again. God in Christ Jesus forgave you. And that's the why. That's why we walk. That's why we put on this new self. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the grace that knows no limits. Thank you for love that never runs out. Thank you for mercy time and time again. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming and making the exchange, for willingly taking upon the wrath of, of God towards my sin in you and imparting to me your righteous robes. And Holy Spirit, forgive me for the times that I grieve you by refusing to put on the life that you offer and instead put on the old one. Forgive me for grieving you. And I pray for our church that as we continue to walk through this book of Ephesians that we will continue to grow in our love, in our unity, that we will become the church that you have called us to be by daily choosing to put on the new self and put off the old by daily renewing our minds because of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.